Welcome to the Sweet 16 preview episode of the Igloo with me, Timmy Ice. Before I cover Creighton and Villanova as they prepare for their Sweet 16 matchups with Gonzaga and Baylor, respectively, which are the number one and two overall seeds in the NCAA tournament and the teams that started number one and two in the country to begin the season in the AP poll back, way back in late November. It's crazy that, you know, this ride started four months ago, and here we are down to just 16 teams. Uh, so before I get onto that, some major news. I, this was a crazy week in college basketball, and really what it boils down to, like the major headline could be summarized in just two words, transfer portal. That thing is filling up to capacity. I mean, there are already several hundred names that have entered the transfer portal already. And several several names from the Big East have trickled their way into the transfer portal. But none bigger than Georgetown center Kudis Wahab. The 6'11 sophomore from Nigeria who was a member of the All-Big East tournament team this year. Enter the transfer portal, much to a lot of people's surprise, including my own. Wahab, Patrick Ewing sung his praises to no end, and rightfully so. Wahab had the potential to be that next great Georgetown center, following them in the in the in the in the footsteps of guys like. Well, most recently, I would say Jesse Govan, but also you talk about guys like Roy Hibbert, Dikembe Mutombo, Alonzo Mourning, Michael Sweetney to an extent, and of course, Patrick Ewing, his head coach. So this came as a total shock, but considering the amount of big men that they're going to be bringing in next year, including Dikembe Mutombo's son, Ryan. Maybe Kudis saw some writing on the wall there that he was feeling threatened by the possibility of losing out on playing time to these freshmen. I mean, this is a really good recruiting class. That Patrick Ewing is bringing in. But losing an established post-presence like Wahab. It's a killer. And this is now the fourth. Really pivotal player that has left Georgetown. And entered the transfer portal under Patrick Ewing. James Akinjo and Josh LeBlanc. Who left mid-season to enter the transfer portal a year ago. And at the end of last year, Mac McClung, who ended up at Texas Tech. By the way, Akinjo at Arizona. And LeBlanc now at LSU, who, by the way, was in the NCAA tournament this year, advancing to the round of 32 uh, before losing to top-seeded Michigan. So now the question is, where is Wahab going to go? Well, obviously, when a big name like that enters the portal, the first name that everyone throws out is Kentucky. 
But, let's be real. Kentucky already has a big-name transfer get that they're going to have next year. Oscar Shibway for West Virginia. One name that has been tossed around, the University of Pittsburgh. It was down to Georgetown and Pitt when Wahab was deciding back in 2019. So there is a real possibility that Wahab ends up at Pitt or another... I really believe he's going to end up at a Power 5 school. He's too damn good to not be at a Power Conference school. I mean, he made his name in the Big East. All Big East tournament selection. He He's going to end up at a Power 5 school. I don't know where, but... It's going to be within that Power Five, whether that be the ACC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12, or the SEC. But again, there's this narrative building around Patrick Ewing that he can't keep established players. And I mentioned those four big examples. Akinjo, LeBlanc, McClung, and now Wahab. It's not good, and it sucks because Patrick Ewing, we are now seeing, like, he's a really good coach. He can maximize his guys' potentials, and we saw that in the Big East tournament when they won four games in four days. I mean, unfortunately, they ran out of gas in the NCAA tournament. I think they really put a lot of time and energy into making that Big East tournament run just to make the tournament. And then when the, when they got to the tournament, I think they just ran out of gas, and we saw it on full display in a blowout loss to Colorado. So, who are some other big-time names that entered the transfer portal? Well, Jason Carter from Xavier, who played the last two years with the Musketeers, was a decent contributor. He really stepped up on the glass this year. Was one of the team's leading rebounders. But, obviously, the scoring just never came along during either of his two years at Xavier after, you know, being a really high-volume scorer when he was at Ohio earlier in his college career. So, it'll be interesting to see where Carter will end up next. Now, some other notable Transfer portal entrances. Two from Seton Hall, Shavar Reynolds and Takal Molson. Reynolds, the starting point guard for the Pirates last year. You know, he really earned his way to that starting point guard role. Uh, but there were times when he looked like a fish out of water going up against some of the very best point guards in the entire conference. Guys like Colin Gillespie, Marcus Zigorowski, so on and so forth. So... For Shavar, you know, listen, as a Seed Hall guy, I met him when he was a walk-on freshman. I mean, I cannot say enough good about him. I mean, he's a really great, humble kid. He comes from a tremendous family. He's got a tremendous work ethic. Any program that gets him will be extremely lucky. And, you know, he's got a lot of lower-tier programs, you know, like St. Peter's and Idaho, Bryant that have reached out to him so far. Uh, I think St. Peter's would be a good landing spot for him because of his connection with Shaheen Holloway. 
And I really believe that, you know, he's got such a gritty defensive squad that Shavar will fit in just so perfectly there. I really believe that. And with Takal Molson, I think what we saw from him this year, I mean, I love the dude's heart. He plays so gritty. But if we're looking at his production on the court, he made one three-pointer all year. One. And that was in their last game of the year in the Big East semifinals two weeks ago. So, I mean, it took him 27 games to make a three. 27. And, I mean, he just... Just couldn't produce to the level that Kevin Willard was really expecting of him. And, you know, that just happens sometimes. So, again, I loved Tox Hart. But, you know, at the same time, you know, you know, to make it in this league, you, you got to produce and, you know, you got to shoot. You got to shoot well. You got to. Well, I mean, what I loved about him was his intensity on the defensive end. I mean, he, Kevin Willard and uh, even fans call him like a junkyard dog. And he really was that, but again, just he couldn't score. So I think the Big E's might have been too big of a step for him to take coming from the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference. I mean, coming over from Canisius in that conference. You know, it happens sometimes. And again, I wish those guys nothing but the best because, you know, they really put a lot of time and effort into playing at Seton Hall. Shavar for four years, to call for one. But I know they're going to want to, you know, realize more of their potential at a lower tier program. So, again, I wish those guys nothing but the best. I really do. Now, with St. John's, Isaiah Moore, he's in the portal. I believe Vince Cole is in the portal as well. Those were two JUCO guys from the state of South Carolina that Mike Anderson got. And, you know, Isaiah Moore was really, really good last year. I mean, there were times when he looked like the best big man that St. John's had he, above guys like Josh Roberts, who, by the way, also entered the transfer portal. So, and Vince Cole, I mean, he looked so good early in the year. Like, okay, this guy could carry St. John's if needed, but it never happened that way. So, you know... I mean, it's unfortunate that we're seeing that, but, you know, it is what it is. But in terms of guys that aren't entering, oh, and another guy I can't forget, Jimmy Nichols from Providence. I mean, he has, he he showed glimmers of potential quite a bit. But unfortunately, what hampered him in, over the last few years, it was the injury bug. And, you know, that that can happen in college sports sometimes, you know. You can have all this potential, but you can't live up to it because you're injured. It happens. It happens at the college level. It even happens in high school. And it happens a lot at the pro level as well. It happens, man. It, 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 it sucks, but that's reality. 
But in terms of guys that are going to come back, Nate Johnson has already announced his intent to return to Xavier. And I think that is big. Because Nate Johnson was by far their best three-point shooter. And he gave them that extra element of three-point shooting that they lacked the year before when that honestly kept them from being an NCAA tournament team. So, getting Nate Johnson back is huge for this Xavier team. I, I really believe that, and that will keep them in the conversation for possibly making the tournament next year. Now, uh, C.J. Wilcher, by the way, I believe, also entered the transfer portal. And from what I read, he's going to Nebraska. So that was, that was quick. Okay. I, you know, that's, I mean, good for CJ. I mean, he didn't really get a lot of playing time as Xavier, but when he did, you know, he, he produced. I mean, he was a good three-point shooter, made the most of his minutes, but, you know, it's tough to get minutes with such a good amount of experience on that Xavier squad, so he's going to go to Nebraska to try to get more minutes. So we'll see how that pans out. But another guy coming back, and this is a big one. Nate Watson from Providence is coming back. Guy who was second team all Big East this year. Dude's good. He's really good. And I really believe that he will be up there as a candidate for Big East player of the year next year. I think undoubtedly he will be the best center in the league but how good can Providence be considering how they really didn't live up to their potential this year? They were third place in the Big East preseason poll this year. They only finished six. They went nine and ten in Big East play and then were bounced in the first round of the Big East tournament kind of embarrassingly against DePaul. So I guarantee, I think Nate Watson coming back, I think that just shows he's got some unfinished business to take care of. So I bet Ed Cooley is thanking his lucky stars that he's coming back. That's a big, big key piece returning for Ed Cooley and will keep his team towards, you know, in in that middle of the pack, trending maybe towards the top of the conference next year. But of course, what's the big news? Marquette has a new head basketball coach, and his name is Shaka Smart. Yes, Marquette got him, pulling him away from the University of Texas, where he had been for the last six years, I believe, and had failed to win an NCAA tournament game during the time that he was the head coach from 2015 to 21. And he went 0-3 in the NCAA tournament as the head coach of the Longhorns. He lost in the first round in 2016 to Northern Iowa, in 2018 to Nevada, and this year against Abilene Christian when his team was a three seed. So obviously that one was way more of a crushing blow because, you know, 
Well, I mean, each one was tough. Like, I mean, Abilene Christian losing to a 14 seed is never good. Losing to Northern Iowa, it's one thing, but losing on a half-court buzzer beater is another. And then they blew a big lead in 2018 against Nevada in the first round. They were up double digits, ended up losing in overtime to a Nevada team that ended up making the Sweet 16. But if that were Texas, that might have been them in the Sweet 16 instead facing Loyola Chicago. I mean, and that Texas team, by the way, had Mo Bamba. Yep, Sheck West's boy. <laughs> I said that. Now, as for, you know, Shaka was born in Rhode Island, but he grew up in Madison. He is a Wisconsin native. And he ended up attending Kenyon College in Ohio, so he has roots to the Midwest. And, you know, he and he's got a very solid resume. You know, he's been a head coach for 12 years now. And, you know, to his name, you know, six years at VCU, six years at Texas before moving on to Marquette. And at VCU, I mean... How could we ever forget taking the Rams from the first four to the final four in 2011? Beat USC in the first four and then proceeded to then beat Georgetown, Purdue, Florida State, and then top-seeded Kansas and route to the program's first ever final four. And as a head coach, is an overall record of 272 and 142. Before arriving at Texas, he was 7-5 in the NCAA tournament. He also advanced to the round of 32 in 2012 and 13. Pulled off an upset as a 12 seed over 5 seed Wichita State in 2012. And then in 2013, he was a 5 seed in the tournament, beating Akron in dominant fashion before losing to the eventual national runner-up. From Michigan, led by Trey Burke. And then a, he was a top five seed again in 2014, but they lost in the first round against 12th seeded Stephen F. Austin. And then in 2015, as a seventh seed in the first round, lost to D'Angelo Russell and Ohio State. So Shaka, he's coming back to his home state. And the funny thing is, Shaka was awfully close to coming to Marquette when they needed a new head coach after the departure of Buzz Williams in 2014. Well, Marquette now has their man. And Alan Bukowski, you know, he gave me the scoop beforehand. I I, I kept quiet on it out of respect because I didn't want to step on his toes. I didn't want to steal his lead. So, and also not leaking inside information that shouldn't have gotten out. So, I, think I, I knew I did the right thing in making sure that information wasn't known uh, to the public once I got a hold of it. But, you know, the whole thing was hashtag done deal. And they were just waiting for Marquette to make that official announcement. And then they did, which was huge. 
So congrats to Marquette on getting the guy they wanted. And congrats to Shaka on, you know, coming back to his home state uh, to coach at a really good program like Marquette. He's got a lot of great pieces that he's going to be able to coach. Dawson Garcia, who, by the way, has connections with Shaka because Dawson, when he was a senior in high school, visited Texas during his recruiting trail. You also got DJ Carton, an absolute stud. He's got all Big East potential written all over him. I really think, you know, the sky could be the limit for Marquette, especially, you know, if Shocker can, can recruit well with his Wisconsin roots and if he can retain guys like Garcia and Carton and Justin Lewis, that'll be huge. That will be huge for Marquette. So obviously the thing is, if they can retain those two guys and even Justin Lewis, who is probably the third leg of that big three, this will help this team immensely. Getting them back to the NCAA tournament for one, and possibly, you know, winning a tournament game for the first time in nearly 10 years. The last time they won a tournament game was back in 2013 when they went all the way to the Elite Eight. So, again, best of luck to Shaka at Marquette. You know, this is a program that has really been longing for the success that it obtained in the early part of the 2010s. So, uh, so that's the off-the-court news. When I come back, got your Sweet 16 preview. Creighton versus Gonzaga, Villanova versus Baylor, and, of course, I'm going to be recapping... Um, well, not recapping, but also previewing the other six Sweet 16 games across the board, making my picks for them. Uh, other games include Florida State versus Michigan, UCLA versus Alabama, Syracuse versus Houston, Oral Roberts versus Arkansas, Oregon versus USC, and Oregon State versus Loyola Chicago. So my predictions for that, and I think, also, my personal keys for Creighton-Gonzaga as well as Villanova-Baylor uh, will be coming up right after this, so don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Let's get these Sweet 16 picks in right now. Starting with Villanova and Baylor. Last time these teams met, it was in the championship game of the Myrtle Beach Invitational back in November of 2019, a game in which Baylor won, which was one of... Just two non-conference losses for Villanova a year ago, the other being at Ohio State. For Nova, they are in the Sweet 16 for the first time since 2018, defeating Winthrop and North Texas. And I'm just saying right now, Villanova, I am sorry for doubting y'all from the beginning. I know I picked Winthrop to beat you in the first round. I didn't really give you a chance. I mean, I, I guess I made up for it by picking you guys to beat North Texas. But again, I'm sorry for doubting y'all. I'll learn my lesson. I mean, if, if I've learned anything, 
It's that Villanova has learned to play without Colin Gillespie. It took them a couple games, but now I think they, they got it down. And definitely showed in their wins against Winthrop and North Texas. You know, 73 points against Winthrop. Not bad. But then they hung 84 on North Texas. And shot really well from the floor. They were efficient on offense. Villanova looked like the Villanova of old against the Mean Green. But this team that they're facing, the Baylor Bears... They're going to make Winthrop and North Texas look like a walk in the park. Baylor is another breed. They're the best three-point shooting team in the country. They are just so good. Macy Oteague, Davion Mitchell, Christian Vital, Mark Vital, I should say. It's... Uh, Jared, and how can I forget first-team All-American Jared Butler? This team is good. They are really, really good. In any other year, they would undoubtedly be the best team in the entire country. Not this year because, I mean, I mean, I'll talk about that other team later on. But this Baylor team, man, you know, they took care of business against Hartford. They did a really solid job against Wisconsin. You know, Wisconsin hung tough early, but then Baylor just ran away with it in the second half. So, I mean, this Baylor team, man, I I just think they're too good. And, And this is not a knock on Villanova, and I'm not saying, like, it's not a matter of Villanova not being that good. It's a matter of Baylor being that good of a team. I mean, this team's a juggernaut. And now that they've got their feet under them after the struggles that they've had following that lengthy COVID pause, I mean, they almost lost to Iowa State at home in their first game coming out of that pause. They lost at Kansas. They lost in the Big 12 semis against Oklahoma State. Their rust clearly showed in those games. But since then, they've really gotten it together they got their legs back underneath them. And I I just think Baylor's too good. So Villanova will be sent packing. And then on Sunday, Creighton Blue Jays taking on Gonzaga. These two teams, they had a home and home back in the 2018 and 2019 seasons. So recapping what happened in that home and home So Creighton visited Gonzaga in December of 2017 in Spokane at the McCarthy Center. And in that game, I mean, the kennel is a tough place to play. And that was a good Creighton team that they had. I mean, Marcus Foster, Kyrie Thomas at their best. But Gonzaga blew the doors off of them, winning 91-74. to One of just two losses in non-conference play that year for the Jays. And then the following year, 
Gonzaga came to Omaha in a game that would be nationally televised on Fox. And Gonzaga was the number one team in the country at the time. And it was, a, it was an offensive clinic, and Gonzaga just proved to be just too powerful. And final score, Gonzaga won 103-92. to 92. That game, Marcus Zigorowski was just a freshman. He was just a freshman. A lot's changed. Gonzaga has turned from a solid team into an absolute machine, really. I I can't say enough how good Gonzaga is. There is a reason why they are 28-0. Four games away from perfection. And doing something that hasn't been done in nearly 50 years. 45 to be exact. Something that hasn't been done since the 1976 Indiana Hoosiers led by Bobby Knight. What's it going to take to beat Gonzaga? Honestly, and I know a lot of people will agree with me. You got to play almost... I'm not saying it has to be, but you have to play nearly a perfect game to beat Gonzaga. It's just the truth. If you want to beat Gonzaga, you have to be dead on, on your game for 40 minutes straight. We've seen teams push them for the first 20 minutes. Case in point, the West Coast Conference Championship game. BYU shot nearly 70% from the floor and was up 12 at halftime on Gonzaga. But they could not shoot as well as they did. And no one knew they could. They couldn't shoot as well as they did in the first half. They Gonzaga made the adjustments. BYU did not shoot anywhere close to as well as they did in the first half. They only scored 25 points in the second half, and Gonzaga found their rhythm offensively and pulled away to a 10-point win. They turned a double-digit halftime deficit to a double-digit win over BYU. All but one of their 28 wins this year have come by double digits. The only one that wasn't was back in early December against West Virginia. <clears throat> Allergy season again, by the way. Springtime, you know. Um, so what's Creighton going to have to do? Well, they're going to have to shoot the lights out. Gonzaga just had their worst shooting performance of the year in their last game against Oklahoma. And even then, they shot 49%. 
That was their worst shooting performance of the year. 49%. Most teams will think that's such a great day for them. For Gonzaga, it was the worst. Well, I think if you're Creighton, I think you have to look at the fact that you are really good. You got to be thinking you're lucky stars. You're really good offensively and that you're talented. You have weapons like Zigorowski and Balak and Mahoney. But on the other side, you have some beasts that you're dealing with on Gonzaga. Suggs, Kispert, Timmy. Even Nemhard and Ayai. That is the best starting lineup I've seen in college basketball since probably 2015 Kentucky. Back when they had the Harrison twins. Devin Booker. Carl Anthony Towns and Willie Cauley-Stein. That team was loaded. And this Gonzaga team is as good or even better than that team. And I say that with all sincerity. I'm not bluffing. You really need a near-perfect game to beat these guys. Essentially, if there's a blueprint you got to take, and I know you can't replicate it because the rules have drastically changed since this happened, when Villanova beat Georgetown for the national title back in 1985, they played the perfect game. Louis Carnesecca even said it in Requiem for the Big East. They played the perfect game. They shot 90% in the second half. I'm not saying Crane's got to shoot 90%, but you got to, I would say you got to shoot right around 60% for the whole game if you want to beat Gonzaga. 60. I really believe that. And you got to make your free throws too. And Creighton is one of the worst free throw shooting teams in the Big East. So that's a little troubling. So, essentially, what do you got to do? Well, I think you got to pray to God Gonzaga doesn't shoot it well. But they have so many weapons that know how to shoot the ball well. Kispert. Suggs can catch fire. Ayayi is a solid three-point shooter. And then you got to find a way to contain Drew Timmy down low. I mean, he put up 30-10 and 10 last game against Oklahoma. Creighton is undersized with Christian Bishop in the middle at six foot seven. He's got to play bigger than that six seven frame to contain Drew Timmy. And containing him, it is much easier said than done. I mean, I'm not saying that Creighton has no chance, but they have the tools to beat them. They have the offensive firepower to do so. And they play at the pace that can allow a team to hang with Gonzaga for a long time. 
So I don't think Creighton's going to win, but I think they will put up much more of a fight than most people are thinking. Because most people are just expecting Gonzaga to just show up and crush Creighton. I don't think we're going to see that. Matter of fact, Gonzaga wins, but I'm going to go as far as to say they will only win by single digits. And that will be only their second time in 29 games winning a game by less than 10 points. So I'm going to call my shot right here, right now with that. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Okay, but I still have to show my faith in this Creighton team. I really think they have figured it out and come together instead of letting the controversy off the court tear them apart. They made it all the way to the Big East final, and yes, they got decimated by Georgetown, but they did not let that destroy them. They were on the ropes against UC Santa Barbara, but... They did not back down. And they were able to make the right plays in order to win the game. And of course, they, strangely enough, won it at the free throw line, getting two huge free throws from Christian Bishop. Getting them in crunch time. And then they took care of business against Ohio and they executed their scouting report perfectly. Basically taking Jason Preston out of the game. And then Marcus Zigorowski. Now we're seeing exactly the kind of player all of us were expecting at the beginning of the year. He has it in him to be able to score at a high level against this Gonzaga team. I really believe that. But again, I think Gonzaga wins, but Creighton will hold their own. And they will only lose by single digits. I'm calling it. So briefly, the other Sweet 16 games that I'm going to be predicting. So I went over Creighton-Gonzaga. I got Gonzaga. I went over Villanova-Baylor. I'm taking Baylor. Now, uh, let's go to the East, shall we? I've got Florida State-Michigan. This is an intriguing matchup. Florida State crushed Colorado in the second round. Michigan got by LSU by the hair on their chinny-chin-chin. Now, who do I think will win this game? I'm, I'm torn, man. I really like Florida State, and I know I picked them in my Elite Eight at the very beginning. But something is telling me in my gut, I think Michigan will figure it out. I mean, they're the last Big Ten team standing. They started with nine. I think there's going to be a sense of pride for Michigan to represent the Big Ten in a strong way against Florida State. And let's not forget, 2018, Michigan beat Florida State to get to the Final Four. So I'm going to roll with the Wolverines, but it's going to be a really, really tight game. Like, really tight. I really believe that. Excuse me. Now, 
UCLA, Alabama, UCLA becomes the first team to go from the first four to the Sweet 16 since 2018 when Syracuse did it. Uh, There have been several teams that have gone from the first four to the Sweet 16. 2011 VCU did it and and route to the Final Four. I'm trying to think off the top of my head here. In 2013, LaSalle did it as a 13th seed. Reached the Sweet 16. Tennessee did it in 2014. As an 11th seed, made it to the Sweet 16. Got a little bit of help with Mercer beating Duke. And then, of course, 2018 with Syracuse. So... How will UCLA fare against the high-powered Alabama Crimson Tide? Honestly, I don't think it's going to be good, (laughs) if I'm being totally honest with you. Uh, As a matter of fact, I am going to take Bama beating UCLA. I think it's going to get ugly, like really, really ugly. Alabama's just that good. They're that loaded offensively. Petty, Shackelford, Quinterly, Jones. Like, my God, that is like murderer's row on the court. Now, Syracuse and Houston. Could be awfully tough for me to fight bias on this because, I mean, listen, I'm from Utica, which is an hour from Syracuse. I grew up going to games at the Carrier Dome. And, I mean, I'm really happy that they're in the Sweet 16, you know. As a double-digit seed, again, proving doubters wrong. You know, people were questioning if they even belonged in the tournament, yet here they are. They've beaten San Diego State and West Virginia, and they're taking on a Houston team that, quite frankly, I don't even know should be still in this tournament because Rutgers just choked royally down the stretch against the Cougars. But... I mean, hey, this cat has nine lives, I guess. How many more lives do they have? I don't know. We'll see. But Syracuse will push them. But I don't know. Just something tells me that Houston, I think, is just too strong. And I think they learned from a loss earlier in the year when they lost to Tulsa, a team that plays a lot of zone, but not as much as Syracuse. No one plays more zone than the Orange. They play that 2-3 zone, 40 minutes, and, and of course, extra if it goes to overtime. I'm going to take the Cougars, but it's going to be close. I would not be shocked if it goes to overtime. Now... Oral Roberts in Arkansas. Oral Roberts has become the Cinderella team of this tournament as a 15 seed, only the second 15 seed to reach the Sweet 16. The only other one being Florida Gulf Coast, a.k.a. Dunked City, back in 2013. They've beaten Ohio State and Florida. Now they get another SEC team in Arkansas. And by the way, these teams met back in December. Oral Roberts led by double digits at the break, but Arkansas pulled away to an 11-point win. Both teams have been drastically different since then. Oral Roberts 
kind of got lucky. You know, they were the fourth seed in the Summit League tournament, but they won that tournament to get to March Madness, and they made the most of that opportunity here. Arkansas went on a really long winning streak to end up finishing as the second-best team in the SEC. I got the Razorbacks winning, and by the way, when it comes to non-conference opponents rematching in the NCAA tournament, the team that won the regular season meeting usually wins the rematch, so I'm going to take the side of history. I am going to take Arkansas. Now, in an all-Pac-12 matchup, Oregon and USC. These teams finished one and two in the Pac-12 standings a year, uh, well, not a year ago, this year. Oregon lost in the Pac-12 semis, as did USC. Oregon lost to Oregon State. USC lost to Colorado. And looking at the head-to-head this season... The first time these teams met, it was, actually they only met one time, February 22nd at USC, and USC blew the doors off of Oregon by 14. So, given what I said before about teams winning a regular season meeting and then when they rematch, in the NCAA tournament, the team that won that regular season meeting usually wins. I'm going to take the side of history on that one. I think Oregon, yes, I I mean, I love their game with guys like former St. John's Red Storm star, LJ Figueroa. And, I mean, I like a lot of their other guys. I like Will Richardson. I love Chris Duarte. And Eugene Omarui, the Rutgers transfer. But I don't know if they're going to have enough to stop Evan and Isaiah Mobley. So, fight on USC as much as it pains me to say that because I am a Notre Dame football fan. I do not like USC football. So, as much as it pains me to say it, I'm pick, I'm going fight on. Give me USC. It pained me to pick Michigan too because as a Notre Dame football fan, I don't like them either. Same with Alabama. And I hate Alabama more than USC and Michigan combined, if I'm being honest with you. So, finally... Oregon State and Loyola Chicago, a matchup that not a lot of people expected this year in the Sweet 16. I don't think anyone did when this season began. This is only the second 12 versus 8 matchup in the Sweet 16. The only other one back in 2002 between Missouri and UCLA. And you know who's the head coach of UCLA at the time and has a lot of knowledge about this? My guy Steve Lavin. In that matchup, it was the 12 seed Missouri who won that matchup. But this is different this time. Loyola Chicago just decimated top-seeded Illinois, a team that a lot of people picked to reach the national championship game. But it wasn't meant to be that way. Loyola Chicago and, of course, the magic of Sister Jean, they are here in the Sweet 16 yet again, and they're taking on an Oregon State team that was picked to finish dead last in the Pac-12 preseason poll. I don't know how much Oregon State will have left in the tank, though. I think Loyola Chicago, I think they are too good at this point. They just really know how to 
smother a team defensively. So, yeah, I am going to take Loyola Chicago. I'm I I I can't pick against Sister Jean here. I mean, if this were a Sunday, this would be a no-brainer, but I did have to give some thought to this today. So I'm going with Loyola Chicago to beat Oregon State. So the Elite Eight, I have set. Gonzaga, USC, Michigan, Alabama, Baylor, Arkansas, Loyola, Chicago, Houston. So if I'm doing everything right, I have... The only one conference that's going to be sending multiple teams uh, to the Elite Eight, and that will be the SEC with their top two teams, Alabama and Arkansas. Interesting. So that should be that should be good. But obviously, these games got to pan out, and I'm really intrigued to see what's going to happen uh, today and tomorrow, and. I'll have a new episode out on Monday once the Sweet 16 is over. Will Creighton-Villanova kind of do the unthinkable here and pull off these upsets? I think for Creighton, it'll be much crazier for them to beat Gonzaga than it will be for Villanova to beat Baylor. I think that much is obvious. But I will recap those games as well as the rest of the Sweet 16 on Monday for you on a new episode of the Igloo. So... That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the Sweet 16. Big East, listen, I, I know I picked Gonzaga and Baylor to beat Creighton and Villanova, respectively. But that's not going to stop me from pulling for both teams. You know, when it comes to this time of the year, you just want to see the Big East succeed. And they've already done that. They only sent four teams to the tournament, but half of them are still standing in the Sweet 16, which... The two Sweet 16 teams for the Big East is more than the Big Ten's lone Sweet 16 team, Michigan. And the Big Ten sent more than double the amount of teams to the NCAA tournament. They sent nine, and Michigan is the only one left standing from that league. Again, the Big East, only four teams to the tournament, and two still stand with Creighton and Villanova. So until next time, this is Timmy Ice. Signing off from the Igloo. Again, thank you for tuning in. Enjoy the games this weekend, and I will catch you all on Monday.